Friday, the 23rd of February, the Feast of St. Polycarp of Smyrna. Let's pray together on this Lenten Friday in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Raise up the fallen, O God, our help. Give light to those whose lives are sunk in violence and degradation. Give trust to those who are afraid to trust. Give hope to those who know no meaning. Give reconciliation to those who are at odds with one another. Lord, you will the salvation of all peoples. Through this season of Lent, touch the hearts of the needy, the hardened, the proud, and the penitent with your transforming love. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Polycarp, pray for us. It is the Sunrise Morning Show on a Lenten Friday, a meatless Lenten Friday. And some of y'all are preparing for a fish fry at your parish. I've got a soup supper going on at mine. And uh, whatever the case happens to be, don't get that sausage biscuit in the drive-thru. No double cheeseburger at lunch. Go for the uh, the fish sandwich. Or tuna. Tuna. It's always a good option. Or a hard-boiled. There, there are ways to get around this. Trust me, you will survive. As long as you know how to live, you will be alive. I'm Matt Swaim. Anna Mitchell has news. Paul Lockman at the controls. And Travis has a video feed up and running. You can catch that in the show notes at sunrisemorningshow.com. We'll talk more about the incredible story of St. Polycarp on this, his feast day with Mike Aquilina. We'll learn how to make a better examination of conscience with Monsignor Charles Pope. Uh, Anna's been reporting for a few days now on this Alabama frozen embryo ruling, and King Craycraft, our legal and political analyst, will unpack some of the legalese involved in this case. And then we'll look ahead to the Sunday Mass readings with Father Hezekiah Carnazzo. So stay with us if you can. Right now it's two minutes past. Here's Anna Mitchell with news. Good morning. Negotiations in Paris between Israel and Hamas are beginning to pick up steam after the Israeli war cabinet agreed to send a delegation this weekend. An anonymous Western diplomat told USA Today it appears both sides want a ceasefire and are willing to make concessions. Israel has said it will not agree to a pause in fighting without a hostage deal. The latest casualty figures from the region estimate just over 30,000 people have died and more than 82,000 have been injured since the war began in October, the overwhelming majority of both of those being Palestinians. An investigation into yesterday's cell phone outages is looking into whether it may have been part of a cyber attack. AT&T cell phone service was fully restored after being out for most of yesterday. Reports say the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and other agencies are looking into the cause as to whether it was a cyber attack or just technical difficulties. Outages were reported in major cities like Houston, Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles, and Atlanta. T-Mobile and Verizon customers also reported issues, but the carriers said their networks did not experience outages and the problems were most likely the result of their customers trying to contact AT&T customers. 
U.S. diplomatic officials are being denied access to a woman from Los Angeles who is being accused of treason in Russia. Mark Mayfield reports. The 33-year-old former ballerina faces 20 years to life in prison for allegedly raising funds for Ukraine. Even though the U.S. and Russia have a long-standing agreement to notify each other if a citizen is being held, Moscow refused to do that because it does not recognize the woman's dual citizenship. The charges reportedly stem from the woman donating $51.81 to a Ukrainian charity. I'm Mark Mayfield. Cardinal Timothy Dolan is defending the staff of St. Patrick's Cathedral in the wake of the funeral for a transgender activist that took place there. The Catholic News Agency reports Cardinal Timothy Dolan said in his podcast this week, quote, All they know is somebody called and said, our dear friend died. We'd love to have the funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral. It would be a great source of consolation. She's a Catholic. It would be a great source of consolation for us, her family, and friends. And, of course, Cardinal Dolan said, the priest at the cathedral said, come on in. You're more than welcome. The Vatican yesterday released the theme for the next World Day of Migrants and Refugees, which takes place in September. From Vatican Radio, Joseph Tollick reports. The Vatican's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development has announced the theme for the 110th World Day of Migrants and Refugees. The theme for this year's World Day, which will be celebrated on Sunday the 29th of September of this year, will be God Walks with His People. Ahead of that date, Pope Francis is expected to release a message. In a press release, the Dicastery said that the message would address, quote, the itinerant dimension of the church with a particular focus on our migrant brothers and sisters who represent a contemporary icon of the journeying church. This is a path to be undertaken in a synodal way, the statement continues, overcoming all threats and obstacles in order to reach our true homeland together. During this journey, wherever people find themselves, it is essential to recognise the presence of God who walks with his people, assuring them of his guidance and protection at every step. Yet, it is equally essential to recognise the presence of the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, in every migrant who knocks at the door of our hearts and offers us an opportunity for encounter. The World Day of Migrants and Refugees is observed every year on the last Sunday of September. First celebrated in 1914, it is an occasion for Catholics worldwide to remember and pray for those displaced by conflict, persecution and economic difficulties. To mark the event, the Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development will carry out a communications campaign aimed at providing a deeper understanding of this year's theme through videos, informational material and theological reflections. I'm Joseph Tullock. And the first U.S.-made spacecraft to touch down on the moon since 1972 had a successful lunar touchdown. Houston-based Intuitive Machines guided its Odysseus lander onto the moon yesterday. It marks the first touchdown by a U.S.-built spacecraft since the Apollo 17 mission. Odysseus is expected to spend roughly a week gathering data before it loses power. Wow. Odysseus, huh? Odysseus. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like you had, like, space jokes or space setups for, like, almost every single day this week, and I, I'm probably out of... You're out of space jokes. I'm out of space jokes. I'm out of... I'm out of uh, space puns. Actually, you know what? I, I, do have, I do have one, but the fact that I've set it up you're you're already waiting for it. Just tell me I was just going to say, it's a Lenten Friday, so if you're going to go to a restaurant, you got to make sure uh, that uh, you go and you order fish sandwiches. And I do know that they, at one point, had a fish place on the moon. I don't know if you know about this. No. No, I didn't. Yeah, I checked the Yelp reviews. Uh, you know what it said? What it did said, it say? Great food, no atmosphere. 
Come on, Anna Mitchell. Come on. Gotcha. It is eight minutes past the hour. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show from FathersOfTheChurch.com is Mike Aquilino. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Andy. So we're talking about St. Polycarp of Smyrna today, his feast, February 23rd. And Mike, he was he was a guy who knew people, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. You have people from the previous generation, people from the next generation. I guess I guess we're all that way. You know, we're raised by our elders and we we raise up our youngers. And uh but in the case of Polycarp, you know, his elders were St. John the Evangelist and other apostles. Wow. We don't know which. You know, some people mention that he knew St. Paul as well, because Polycarp was a contemporary of the apostles. He was converted by the apostles. He was made a bishop by John, and then he lived to raise up an illustrious next generation that included St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who's the church's newest uh, doctor of the church, uh, even though he's he's also the oldest one in, in terms of chronology. So yeah, yeah, Polycarp just knew people, as you say. You know, he um he was connected. He was also uh, an associate of St. Ignatius of Antioch, the great mm -hmm. martyr who in 107 AD wrote seven letters to the churches. Well, he actually wrote two letters to Polycarp. Two of those seven letters are to Polycarp for the man himself and the other um, for his church, because Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna in Asia Minor. Wow. So, yeah, man, talk about connections. He was like LinkedIn, wasn't he? Yeah, for real. I mean, to have such connections, I mean, clearly he must have had good theology, and we'll get to that in, in a little bit here. But he must have also just had some good stories to tell as well. Oh, sure. And uh, and that's what Irenaeus remembered most fondly. As a matter of fact, many years later, you know, after, after Polycarp's death, um, uh, Irenaeus, as, you know, wrote reminiscences of his youth when he was sitting at the feet of Polycarp, listening to his stories about St. John. So he would sit with these young people, these young men, and, and tell them stories about St. John, stories from the old days, at the from the beginning of Christianity. And so, uh, so many years later, um, Irenaeus would remind one of his classmates, so to speak, uh, a man named Florinus, who was living in Rome. He was a priest, and he had actually gone off the rails and fallen into heresy. And and uh, and Irenaeus used these memories as kind of a reminder to him of the steadfastness of Polycarp, of Polycarp's connection to the apostles and his reliability for that reason. So, you know, Polycarp just exemplifies the tradition for me and for so many others because of that connection, because he received the faith from the apostles who had received it from Jesus, and then he passed it on to the next generation in, in great figures like um, like Irenaeus of Lyon. And fighting some big heretics as well. Could you talk about his role in combating the, the Marcion heresy, basically the, this heresy that, that kind of rejected the Old Testament and divided the God of the Jews of ancient times from the good God of the New Testament? Right. He was a very, Marcion was a very uh, dangerous heretic because he had a lot of money. He was a shipbuilder and he had millions and millions of dollars and he was willing to spend all that money to promote 
his heresy. So he, he moved to the capital city of the empire to have easy access to uh, communications routes and, and trade routes and, and, you know, the better to spread his bad doctrine. And it was there on the streets of Rome that Polycarp met met this man, uh, met Marcion. And uh, Marcion walked up to Polycarp and he said, he said, don't you know who I am? And Polycarp said, of course I know who you are. You're the firstborn of Satan. Strong words. But that's how seriously he took heresy. That's how seriously a bishop would deal with heresy in those, those early generations of the church. Wow. So how much of Polycarp's writing survives today, Mike? Well, we know that he wrote several letters, but only one survives. His letter to the Philippians, it's a, a letter of, of good, solid, general advice for living the Christian life. And he addresses particular advice to particular groups, young men, young women, old men, old women, you know, and so on. So he's he's very much a pastor. Um, we know, he, as I said, he wrote he wrote other letters, but that's that's the one that survived all the ages. It's important for historians, because in it he witnesses to the use of many of the documents of the New Testament. And this is an early witness to the the, the authority of those documents, the canonicity, so to speak, mm. of those documents. So that's one. The other, the other document that's related to Polycarp is a description of his martyrdom and his, his trial in martyrdom yeah. uh, that was set down by his secretary. Uh, at, at, the, at the time. So we're talking about the middle of the 100s, and that particular document became a bestseller in the church. Oh, I it believe was spread, it. spread throughout the world uh, as an example of Christian steadfastness in the face of great, great danger. Which is exactly where I wanted to end the conversation with you today. Tell us what we know about his martyrdom. Well, you know, he had, um, he was a very old man by then. He was probably 86 years old, if not older, because he says in his interrogation, his trial, that he, he had been 86 years a Christian at that point. So if he was baptized as an infant, he was 86 years old. Uh, but if he, if he was baptized as a child, well, maybe he was in his nineties at that point, um, so he faced he faced the uh, the the interrogation with with great courage, even though he knew what was coming, uh, and he um, <laughs> there's a, he actually he actually was able to make a kind of, kind of a joke at one point. Uh, Christians at that time were called atheists because they did not believe in the Roman gods, and the the magistrate tells him to re, you know renounce his errors and curse the atheists, meaning the Christians. And, uh, wow. and, um, and, and say, and, and, and so he, Polycarp looks at the crowd, all of these, these pagans, and he looks up to heaven and he says, away with the atheists. <laughs> <laughs> so he's cracking a joke there at the, at the magistrate's expense. We don't know if the magistrate got the, got the joke, but he did condemn Polycarp to death. They tried for a while to kill him unsuccessfully. Polycarp was able to utter a prayer that was set down, it follows in structure the ancient Eucharistic prayers that we still use in the church. And then he was set aflame, and uh, and and they say that his his body gave off not the stench of burning flesh, which everyone knew because that's how they executed criminals, but rather it gave off the aroma of baking bread and incense. Wow. Baking bread and incense. So there's this association of Polycarp's death his martyrdom with the death of Christ, which is represented in the Eucharist, 
where we receive bread and we know the aroma of incense. It's a beautiful ending to a beautiful life. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike Aquilina. Of course, we are all members of the body of Christ, are we not? Wow. St. Polycarp, pray for us. 16 past now on the Sunrise Morning Show. We're back with headlines right after this. Support is from MediShare. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that is MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for healthcare can save many families up to 500 bucks a month, and that is huge. But it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The member satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan. Double. MediShare works, too. It's been around for 30 years. Members have shared more than $5 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, really, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want to plan you're happy with. You can call right now. You'll get a price within two minutes. So see what you can say. This is a very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. Call 877-64-BIBLE. That's 877-64-BIBLE. 877-64-BIBLE. Giving up coffee for Lent? Look no further than the Mystic Monks for a great selection of their Mystica tea to get you through the season. And when you shop their site for tea or coffee, after clicking the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you earn us a commission. While you're at our site, check out our online store where you can purchase Sunrise Morning Show mugs and travel mugs. Find our mugs and link to Mystic Monk coffee and tea at sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. Hey, this is Michael O'Neill, the Miracle Hunter. I'll be delving into the fascinating world of miracles and taking you on a hunt that explores the greatest mysteries and marvels of the Catholic Church. I'll be examining what constitutes a miracle, how miracles are investigated and approved, and the role they play in the lives of the faithful. We'll look at the miracles of the Gospels in early Christianity, considering the claims of the miraculous in our own modern age. The Miracle Hunter, tomorrow at 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. 18 past. Here's Anna with headlines. Negotiations in Paris between Israel and Hamas are beginning to pick up some steam after the Israeli war cabinet agreed to send a delegation there this weekend. Cardinal Timothy Dolan is defending the staff of St. Patrick's Cathedral in the wake of the funeral for a transgender activist that took place there. And the Vatican yesterday released the theme for the next World Day of Migrants and Refugees. Anna Mitchell, a great conversation with Mike Aquilina about Polycarp of Smyrna. St. Polycarp, earliest reliable account of a Christian martyrdom outside the New Testament. Connections back to St. John the Apostle himself. In uh, Mike's Fathers of the Church, which is just like he takes excerpts from the Fathers of the Church in his introduction um, ahead of sharing the martyrdom of Polycarp, Mike talks about how Polycarp was an example of Christian living and for for those in his flock in Smyrna and then became a model for generations to come and how a Christian should die. Yeah, so I always like to bring up that you've got a kind of a trilemma with Polycarp. Some Christians out there say, well, Christianity went off the rails after the death of the last apostle, uh, and you can't trust anything past the New Testament. So if that's the case, you've got you got three options when it comes to the story of Polycarp, which is a pretty reliable account. Mm-hmm. So if you think that there's a great apostasy, the whole church fell away after the death of the, of the last apostles, here are your three options. Number one, 
you have to think that Polycarp is only a truly Christian martyr because John the Apostle is somehow still alive <laughs> when Polycarp is martyred. Mm-hmm. So therefore, he would be martyred before the death of the last apostle because John the Apostle lived a very long time in exile. Your second option would be that, well, Polycarp being from, you know, maybe maybe he uh, didn't die after John. Maybe, I mean, maybe he didn't die while John was alive. He did die after John was alive, and so maybe he really is a Christian martyr. Uh, and maybe Christianity is around in some form after the death of the last apostle. Those are the two good options that you got if you want to make that the argument. that Because if you make the great apostasy argument and John is dead, you're left saying that Polycarp, being a generation after the apostles, either misunderstood or willfully distorted the gospel and died for a false religion. Same for his friend Ignatius of Antioch. Yeah, same for every martyr moving forward. Go read their letters and, you can't, and tell me that. You can't draw that conclusion from the information we actually have you about these people. To think outside the box to find new customers, you can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on The Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. Have you subscribed to get the Sunrise Morning Show show notes? When you subscribe, the show notes arrive in your inbox weekday mornings with the list of featured guests, books, articles, and websites we'll discuss. And then you'll also get the podcast with markers to quickly find and hear an interview again or to see the Sunrise Morning Show on video. So to know when your favorite guests are on, Go to sunrisemorningshow.com and click subscribe. This is Deacon Bill Mullaney with a Lenten prayer. Heavenly Father, we simply cannot know the intensity of your son's sufferings for us. We cannot comprehend that he could love us so deeply. Our willingness to suffer for anyone is as shallow as our appreciation for his suffering for each of us because we never experienced that crown of thorns. We cannot know the pain it brought Jesus. It has not occurred to us that no pain we might endure is like the pain Jesus suffered as the nails were driven into his hands and feet. Help us, Lord, to accept each trial we face as an opportunity to place ourselves closer to Christ, an opportunity to make him the center of our lives. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Joining us again on the Sunrise Morning Show is Monsignor Charles Pope. He writes for the Archdiocese of Washington at their blog that you can find at blog.adw.org. You can find all his writing at monsignorpope.com. Good morning, Monsignor Pope. Good morning. So I am sure that you have heard a lot of confessions in your years as a priest. Um, In general, do you find that penitents make a good examination of conscience ahead of time? Well, I I think a lot of them do. Um, But I I think one of the issues that comes up is, um, for all of us, I mean, I I think that 
the confession can get kind of perfunctory after a while. You know, you just sort of go and you kind of say some things, and they're mostly what we might call external deeds. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think there's there's an invitation to go a little deeper, and it just comes down to asking a kind of a revolutionary question, not just what did I do, but why. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where I think we. Um, um, you know, we we can we can all learn to go a little bit deeper. So I I get angry. I yelled. I took something I didn't. I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. Um, okay, those are the external deeds. But but why why are you doing that? What are what are some of the deeper drives that are fueling that? Why do you get angry so easily? You know that kind of a thing. Well, I'll tell you, Monsignor Pope, the person you put here with me, Lord, made me do it. <laughs> You know, like it is easy yeah. to kind of blame other people, but there actually are deeper things from within our heart that that lead us into sin. Yeah, and you know, um, the Lord Jesus, you know, Himself had, um, you know, you know, said said something to that effect. You know, it was in Matthew seven when He said, um, "It's what comes out of a person that defiles them from within, mm. from 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 one's own heart." Come evil thoughts like unchastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness. It goes on to say, all these evils come from within, and they defile. Wow. So that's that's the idea of looking a little bit deeper. Um, and uh, so at the end of the day, one place to begin. I mean, to, to what, what do I mean by some of the, you know, the deeper drives? You know, for, for example, if if if. Um, you know, I were to, you know, maybe just, you know, we could we could list any number of, um, um, you know, external things that we do. But, but let, let me let me suggest. Uh, I'll, I'll read to you some of the, the things that we might call the deeper drives. Um, and um, they're they're more. When I say drives, remember the seven deadly sins we have. But there's so many more drives too that are in there too. Uh, for example, fear. Indifference, contempt, impurity, hatred, laziness, cowardice, anger, greed, jealousy, revenge, you know, stinginess. And, and I've, got a, I've got another like list here that gets even more personal, mm-hmm. that we can be obnoxious, dishonest, egotistical, undisciplined, weak, impure, wow. arrogant. Now, I could go on. There's, I've got a long list here, but the, the point is that you notice that those, are, those aren't exactly deeds. They're... And they're, they're they're sort of halfway between thoughts and feelings. They're sort of attitudes. Mm. We just carry them around all the time, and they're there all the time. And we we almost don't even notice that they're there because they're always up and running. You know, again, uh, pompous, insincerity, unchaste, grasping, judgmental, impatient, lukewarm, slothful, shallow, inconsistent. You know, I mean, on and on. You know, I mean, and so what I did is I, I put together on my blog. Um, um, a little pamphlet that you can kind of click through. Um, it up for our video participants and, um, right now. The litany you know, you, of repentance. Yeah, litany of repentance, and uh, it has some of these things. It starts out with kind of objective deeds, but then it moves deeper into those drives. And you know, there's just something revolutionary about saying, "Wow, you know, I mean, that's in me. You know, it's all the time. It's, it's, it's I don't even think to confess it because it's just an attitude. You know." Yeah. Well, you know, that is something that I was thinking about, Monsignor Pope, that I hope that you can reflect upon, um, because I know that this is something that I've thought about in my own life, and I hear priests talk about 
hearing this quite a bit. You know, people will say, Father, I have to keep coming back for these same sins. And and yes, I mean, oftentimes I hear a priest react to that by saying, well, at least you're not creating new sins, committing new Mm -hmm. sins to bring to confession, which I mean, I get that. That is a good thing to not be committing Mm -hmm. new sins. But at the same time, there must be something that mm-hmm. keeps me returning to the same old sins. Yeah, and you know what? Let's take an example. A very common example is anger. You know, so someone might say, "Well, I, I get angry at the kids a lot, or I, I, I you know, I, I yell at my husband or my wife or what have you." You know, but usually, not all the time, but one of the deepest roots of anger is fear. Um, we get anxious and fearful. And then, you know, that generates a lot of anger. And so the, one of the invitations I think the Lord can give us is, well, listen, why do you get angry so easily? Well, very often you're going to find it's fear. And I'll just give you a quick example to show you how it's related. I, even animals have this, you know, that if I have a cat here, a little jewel, and if I corner her and look threatening, she starts to arch her back and hiss mm-hmm. because she's afraid. Now, what's happening in her body is that blood, adrenaline is, is flooding through her body. And she's preparing her to fight or to flee. And that anger, that anger response is actually protective. But a lot of times, you see, we get angry because we're afraid of a lot of things we shouldn't be afraid of. Mm-hmm. We're fearful of what people think of us. We're fearful of all kinds of things. And so that's the idea, to try to go through a little deeper. And um, you start with the seven deadly sins, but you can also look at this little litany of repentance I came up with. Absolutely. Highly recommend this, and I'll be bringing it to my next confession as well. And you can find it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Monsignor Charles Pope, thank you. Thank you. And you can find all of our guests linked on a daily basis in our show notes at sonrisemorningshow.com. Be sure to subscribe while you're there. Half past the hour now on the Sunrise Morning Show, it's time for news. Negotiations in Paris between Israel and Hamas are beginning to pick up some steam now after the Israeli war cabinet agreed to send a delegation this weekend. An anonymous Western diplomat told USA Today it appears both sides want a ceasefire and are willing to make concessions. An investigation into yesterday's cell phone outages is looking into whether it may have been part of a cyber attack. AT&T cell phone service was fully restored after being out for most of yesterday. Reports say the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies are looking into whether the cause was a cyber attack or just technical difficulties. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley says she agrees with the recent Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children. Mark Mayfield has more. However, she told CNN that she has not endorsed the ruling. Last week's ruling said embryos created during in vitro fertilization are extra uterine children and are legally protected in Alabama like any other child. On Wednesday, Haley was asked about the ruling during an interview and said, Embryos to me are babies. She cautioned, however, that we need to be incredibly respectful and sensitive about families using in vitro fertilization. I'm Mark Mayfield. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, on the other hand, have both condemned the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling. In a statement yesterday, Biden said the decision is the type of chaos they expected as the result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. 
Harris took to social media Wednesday and said the ruling was outrageous and was already, quote, robbing women of the freedom to decide when and how to build a family, end quote. Harris yesterday continued her pro-abortion tour of the country, rallying with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and others in Grand Rapids. Meanwhile, thousands of Virginias yesterday showed their support for pro-life laws in the Commonwealth. They took part in the annual state march for life at the state capitol in Richmond yesterday. The governor and lieutenant governor both participated in the march, reaffirming their opposition to any expansion of abortion funding and services. Governor Yunkin called those efforts by Democrats, quote, disconnected with what Virginians believe. He said he would work to find bipartisan support for ways to protect the unborn and help children thrive once they are born. A retired bishop from Australia was arrested this week and charged with 19 sexual offenses. From Vatican Radio, Christopher Wells reports. Bishop Christopher Saunders, the former ordinary of Broome in Western Australia, was arrested on Wednesday. He was reportedly released on bail on Thursday and ordered to reside at his home until his next hearing in June. The bishop is charged with two counts of rape, 14 counts of unlawful and indecent assault, and three counts of indecently dealing with a child as a person in authority. In a statement, Archbishop Timothy Costello, the president of the Australian Catholic Bishops' Conference, said the allegations were very serious and deeply distressing, especially for those making those allegations. It is right and proper, he continued, and indeed necessary, that all such allegations be thoroughly investigated. Accusations were first made against Bishop Emeritus Broome in 2020. An initial police investigation was closed without charge, but Pope Francis then ordered a canonical investigation according to the provisions of Vos Estis Lux Mundi, his 2019 motu proprio on combating sexual abuse. The investigation was overseen by Archbishop Mark Coleridge of Brisbane, but was carried out by independent investigators and terminated in a 200-page report. After this report was handed over to Australian police, they opened a new investigation into Bishop Emeritus Saunders. It is as part of this investigation that he has now been charged. The bishop resigned from his post in 2020. I'm Christopher Wells. Cardinal Timothy Dolan is defending the staff of St. Patrick's Cathedral in the wake of a funeral there for a transgender activist. The Catholic News Agency reports Cardinal Dolan said in his podcast they don't do FBI background checks for funerals. He said all they know is somebody called and said our dear friend died. We'd love to have the funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral. It would be a great source of consolation. She's Catholic. And he said the priest said, of course. It's 35. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, leah at sacredheartradio.com. That's leah 
at sacredheartradio.com. If you're switching from coffee to tea for Lent, the Mystic Monks have got you covered with a dozen options from your usual Darjeeling and Earl Grey to more exotic flavors like lemongrass mint and blossoming jasmine. Whether you're buying tea or coffee, you can support the Sunrise Morning Show by earning us a commission on your purchase when you click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. While you're there, browse the Sunrise Morning Show mugs and etched travel mugs in our online store. Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee and tea at sonrisemorningshow.com. This is Every Day with St. Francis de Sales. One of the greatest proofs of love that Jesus displayed on the cross was putting up with the imperfections of his neighbor. He even showed his love for those who put him to death. In those dire moments, the Savior expressed thoughts of love even for his executioners, pardoning them in the very act of sinning. How petty-minded we are when we cannot bring ourselves to forget some injury received even after a long time. Whoever sincerely pardons another calls down abundant blessings and perfectly imitates Christ. The lives of the saints are nothing but the gospel put into practice. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Father Chris Armstrong. It's 37 minutes past the hour. You're listening to the Sunrise Morning Show on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. So happy to have you along with us on this feast of St. Polycarp, Bishop, Apostolic Father of the Church and Martyr. Pray for us. Sunrise Morning Show legal and political analyst Ken Craycraft is back with us now. He's a professor at Mount St. Mary's Seminary, writes for the Catholic Telegraph and our Sunday Visitor, among other publications. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Annie. Good to be with you. It is good to have you. And lots of people talking about the ruling from the Alabama Supreme Court over frozen embryos conceived through in vitro fertilization. So first of all, talk about the case um, and how this whole issue arose and, and what were the issues at stake in this case? Yeah, that's that's an important place to start, Annie, because there's a lot of misinformation about exactly what happened in this case. First of all, the, the court, uh, this is not a criminal case. That's the first and most important thing. Mm-hmm. The court would say that uh, killing frozen embryos is murder or, and, and in fact, there's no, there's no criminal aspect to this case at all. It's a civil case. Alabama has a, uh, Alabama has a law called the uh, wrongful death of a minor act. Uh, under that act, there, the uh, an unborn child, a fetus, is considered to be a child under under that act. The act doesn't say anything about fetuses, however. So what happened in this case is that uh, a, a three couples who had uh, fro- who had frozen embryos after uh, an IVF treatment, and we'll talk later on about that, uh, had uh, sued another person, actually another uh, patient or another client of that clinic which had dropped the uh, container containing those frozen embryos and had destroyed them. And so the the three couples brought a lawsuit against the the person who dropped the embryos for the wrongful death of the fetus. But again, it was a civil lawsuit, not a criminal one. It didn't involve the state of Alabama at all. Two lower courts dismissed the case, saying that the embryos were not human beings and therefore did not fall under the wrongful death to a minor act. The Alabama Supreme Court reversed 
and said that under the act in Alabama, which doesn't specify uh, 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 embryos outside the womb, but it also doesn't exclude them, these frozen embryos are children under the act, human beings under the act, and therefore the couples could bring the action. Now, once again, I want to further clarify the case because the court did not say that the couples who sued for the wrongful death of the fetus won the case. They only said that they can go back to the trial court to try to prove that the that they have uh, that there was a negligence uh, by the couple by the person who dropped it destroying the feed, the destroying the uh, the embryos so the couple who sued didn't even win the case yet they only they only won the right to go back to court wow. to try to prove their case which they may or may not do however it is important enough to understand that the Alabama Supreme Court has said under the Alabama statute that the embryos are human beings for the purpose of bringing a wrongful death act um, it did not say that a couple could be uh, could be criminally prosecuted for destroying them. And as a matter of fact, the odd thing about this case, as in many cases like uh, this involving frozen embryos, the couples who brought the lawsuit had actually signed an agreement that said if the frozen embryos were not used after five years, the clinic itself could destroy them. Now, that puts those contracts under scrutiny because if it's the case that these are human beings, then an Alabama Supreme Court could also say contracts which allow for the destruction of frozen embryos voluntarily uh, is against public policy and therefore cannot be allowed. Wow. So the, the, legal, the legal issues are very narrow, and it only applies to Alabama under this statute. So it doesn't apply to any other state at this point. It doesn't even apply to Alabama's criminal statute. It is an important case, but we have to understand that at least a, on this level, it's a relatively narrow one. Okay, but tell us, Ken, um, from a Catholic perspective, are these children who were destroyed in that, I, I think it's so amazing, they're called cryogenic nurseries. Yeah, I like that term. Yes, yes, by all means they are. There isn't any question whatsoever that by the standards of Catholic moral doctrine, uh, they are children. They are separate human beings with their own DNA structures created by the, uh, in, in, as any other human being is. The fact that they were created uh, outside of the, the womb doesn't change the fact that they are human beings. And so from the Catholic's perspective, they are human beings. And as a matter of fact, you know, one of the reasons that that Catholic moral theology rejects IVF, among others, uh, obviously the, the, the most important one is that separates the conjugal act or the reproductive act from marriage, is precisely because it does involve the destruction of embryos in almost every case. So from our standpoint and from the standpoint of Catholic moral theology, they certainly are human beings, and this is a case that should be applauded. But on the other hand, we have to be very cautious about our applause of the case because, as I said, it's it's somewhat narrow, and it doesn't necessarily say that in vitro fertilization will even end in Alabama. As a matter of fact, the court, uh, in, in a concurring opinion, provided for two different things. First of all, it's it provided for a way that other states could enact legislation that would be similar to Alabama's that would also protect frozen embryos. But it also said that it's not going to weigh in on the, the wisdom of, of its decision. It, it actually said that, you know, we, we, aren't, we aren't confident that this is the, the right public policy. 
what we are confident about is that we're reading the statute correctly and it invited the legislature to make any kinds of changes if the legislature wants mm -hmm. to about the status of frozen embryos and the liability for keeping them alive. But yes, from the standpoint of Catholic moral theology, these are human beings and they're, they should be afforded the same protection as any other human being uh, in a similar situation. Wow. I mean, that, that makes it very sticky, though, doesn't it, from a legal standpoint here in the United States, the way that the way that we would handle this? Yes, it absolutely does. And that's why, even though I said the case is a narrow one in terms of the uh, Alabama statute, it has very broad implications and every state is sitting up and taking notice. Now, states that already provide for very liberalized access to abortion are not all that concerned about it. But, but the several states since uh, the Dobbs decision, which have uh, uh, regulated abortion or even outlawed abortion in almost every case, are looking at the Alabama case to see how they might refashion their own statutes in order to comprehend this, which, of course, is going to have a chilling effect on IVF. And let me tell you, Annie, even if it would have a chilling effect on IVF, that would be a good thing, because in almost every case in IVF, uh, embryos will be destroyed. As I said earlier, even this Scraped couple had trash. agreed that the, the embryos could be destroyed, exactly, uh, could be destroyed if they weren't used. And that is always the case, because what happens is, is a woman is given a drug called Clomid, which stimulates follicle production, which stimulates ovary, uh, the ovaries, which uh, makes uh, more eggs to fertilize, because the, rate, the success rate of in vitro fertilization is so very, very low. And so they have uh, extra eggs to fertilize, to implant, if the first or second or third implantation doesn't work. Once it does work and the couple doesn't want any more children, those are destroyed. Pro-life states are not going to look at this case and say, what kind of statutes can we enact that will protect those lives and therefore not so much prosecute women for destroying them or couples for destroying them, but discouraging IVF in the first place. Discouraging IVF would be a good public policy yes. step. Now, Annie, it's very important at this point to say that that we ha we can't ignore the plight of infertile couples and the cross of infertility is a very serious one and we catholics have a grave moral responsibility to accompany couples who are infertile and also to encourage ways that infertility can be overcome through licit means rather than these kinds of means yeah. uh, which of course includes uh, adoption and adoption you know adoption is extremely expensive in the united states Good public policy would make it less expensive by subsidies and other kinds of alleviating, uh, alleviating the expense of adoption. Mm -hmm. So we can't forget the cross of infertility, and we have to have compassion for people who are uh, who are infertile and want to have children. But IVF is not the way. And this case could actually have a positive public policy implication in discouraging IVF in other states and therefore discouraging the destruction of frozen embryos. Yep. And wouldn't it be nice if this would encourage more scientific research into things like the Paul VI Institute does through uh, Creighton and... Um, Absolutely. I can't yeah. think of the name of... Oh my gosh, Matt's going to kill me that I can't think of the name of the, the method. When they go in and try to figure out why is right. it that this woman exactly. is is incapable of of conceiving for whatever reason and actually going in and addressing these issues rather right. than just and like coming up with exactly. we've run out of time but that's a whole other conversation <laughs> to have napro technology thank you matt he just messaged yes. me um yeah. and and you know you just hope that and that the test is facilitating the test is facilitating not bypassing 
fertility. Yep. And that's that's the difference. Exactly. Absolutely. Ken Craycraft, really appreciate your analysis this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. All right. It's 13 till. Father Hezekiah Carnazzo is next. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. Catechism in a Year with me, Father Mike Schmitz, is now available right here on Catholic Radio. Encounter God's plan of sheer goodness for us, revealed in Scripture and passed down through the tradition of the Catholic faith as we journey together toward our heavenly home. Bible in a Year and Catechism in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz, tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific on EWTN Radio. With us on the Sunrise Morning Show is Father Hezekiah Carnazzo from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Annie. It's such a blessing to be with you and your listeners today. It is a blessing to have you back. And we are looking ahead to the second Sunday of Lent. And the gospel is from Mark chapter 9, the story of the Transfiguration. Why are we hearing the story of the Transfiguration during Lent? You know, this is a good question, a very deep study that if, if those that would like to go to our Institute of Catholic Culture website can do a full study of this text. It's very beautiful. But the Church always has seen the Transfiguration as a lens through which the Apostles and all of us are invited upon this journey to Jerusalem. It's shortly after this that Scriptures tell us that Jesus set His face to Jerusalem. His public ministry is now coming to a close. And he's going to journey down the Jordan Valley through Jericho and make, make his way to Jerusalem for his passion. And it's here that the apostles, his closest friends, are strengthened for that journey because they're going to see things which are going to cause them to doubt. I have a beautiful quotation I'd like to share with you and your listeners, if you don't mind, from Archbishop Joseph Raya on this moment in which the apostles see the transfigured Lord. It's quite beautiful. He says, On the mountain of transfiguration, Christ shone with such radiance that the disciples were, could not bear to gaze directly at him. The intensity of the radiance of his divine presence swept them away, and the brilliance of his beauty absorbed all their attention. And in, in, and in this, Annie, the transfiguration, it's meant to strengthen the apostles, to strengthen all of us from what is coming, and to focus our attention upon Christ in glory, that is, the resurrected one, that now, across the great sea of the fast, we even now begin to see the glimmering light of the resurrection, calling Christ and calling all of us. And in between here and there is the cross and the tomb. There's much darkness, but with the light of Christ now inspiring us, strengthening us on transfiguration, 
uh, we can now make this journey to the cross of Christ and eventually to his third day resurrection. Well, we have this incredible scene of of Jesus's clothes becoming dazzling white, but that's not the only thing that that the the apostles are seeing here. Why do Moses and Elijah show up? There's a lot of different interpretations of this, Annie, but I think the best one is that their conversation that they have. It's not made ex- explicit here in the text, but in the other gospels, it says that they spoke of Jesus's upcoming exodus. And of course, well, Moses is obvious. Elijah, not so much, but the tradition the church says Elijah, when Jerusalem and the Holy Land became so filled with evil that he made his own exodus, not into the Promised Land, but out of the earthly Promised Land, and was baptized in the Jordan, taken up into the fiery chariot into heaven. And so he himself made his own exodus. And therefore, they, while, the, while the tradition of the church says, oh, this is the, the law and the prophets represented here, yet I think there's something more. Both of them are, are there to speak with the Lord about what is about to take place, his own exodus through death to the resurrected life. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and there's a final thing that I think is important. Both of these men are believed to dwell in paradise, in heaven, bodily. It is a tradition among the Jews that Moses' body was assumed into heaven after he died, and then, of course, Elijah was taken up bodily. Both of these men appear now, uh, being the fulfillment of the expectation of the people of the Old Testament, who look forward to the coming of the Messiah and return of both Moses and Elijah. Remember, this is the conversation which the Pharisees have with John the, in, in the Jordan River, because they're looking for these two men to return when the Messiah comes. Okay, so let's connect this then to the first reading uh, from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, Abraham's attempted sacrifice of his son Isaac. Why would we see these two readings paired, the, the transfiguration and, and this sacrifice? Well, Annie, we've just talked about the transfiguration looking really enlightening. It's the lens through which we see the passion of Christ. You know, I'm glad you said it the way you said it, attempted, which is maybe what we normally would see. Oh, well, Abraham goes up, he thinks he has to kill his son, and but he, thank God he doesn't have to do that. But this is not the traditional reading of this text by any means. There's two things that are very important. Right at the beginning, Abraham says to his servant, remain here, and I and the, and the lad will return to you. He says that right here in the text with this sacrifice of Isaac. And, uh, and St. Ephraim and the other church fathers say, see, Abraham believed in the resurrection. He believed that though he was going to have to take the life of his son, that God would give him back to him, and they would return down the mountain. That's the first thing. The second thing is that Abraham himself is sacrificed to the Lord. Both Isaac and Abraham are images of Christ in this way. Remember, when it comes time to go to the mountain, who is it that carries the wood up the mountain, Annie? It's Isaac. Why? Abraham's an old man. Isaac is a strapping young man. He's the one that's strong enough to carry the wood. He's stronger than his father is, which means he has to be willing to go up the mountain. He has to be willing to be tied down. He has to be willing to be sacrificed, and therefore he's a perfect image of the Son of God, of Jesus. Abraham himself is sacrificed to God. The word sacrifice means is two words, sacra feature, to make holy, to make godlike. Here it is that Abraham gives his whole self over to the Lord. And you have to realize, in those days, child sacrifice was not uncommon. The key thing to understand here 
is that at this moment, Abraham is taken out of the pagan world in which he lives, and he meets the Lord really for the first time. Now, he's met him before, of course, but here he comes face to face with who God really is. He's no longer the God of the pagans. He's the one who has given his life to us and asked for the return of our life to him. And both Abraham and Isaac fully give themselves over to the Lord. And when they do that, when they discover his presence in their life, he says, no, 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 I'm not that kind of, of God. I'm not that kind of father. Remove that sword, for you have already sacrificed yourself to me. And in this, you have gained my way of life. And then, of course, we see this beautiful image of the ram hanging in the, in the branches of the tree. St. Ephraim says that at this moment, the ram uh, lost its footing and literally hung itself upon the branches of the tree to prefigure the one who willingly went to the cross, was crucified for us, prefiguring Christ who is to come. And as we hear in uh, Romans chapter 8 in the second reading, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but handed him over for us all, how will he not also give us everything else? We've been talking to Father Hezekiah Carnazzo. And, Father, you mentioned a resource on the transfiguration at the beginning of our conversation. How can listeners find that and other resources at the Institute? instituteofcatholicculture.org. And you can find that linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Father and I do a one-hour Bible study on the Sunday Mass readings every week. And, oh my gosh, the stuff on Abraham is mind-blowing instituteofcatholicculture.org. We got another hour of the Sunrise Morning Show coming up after a quick break here for most of our affiliates on EWTN Radio. Stay with us. Arise, it's a new day. Hear his word, let us pray. The Sunrise Morning Show. Continue on this Friday, the 23rd of February. It's the memorial of St. Polycarp of Smyrna. Let's pray uh, the collect for Mass today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God of all creation, who are pleased to give the Bishop St. Polycarp a place in the company of the martyrs, grant through his intercession that sharing with him in the chalice of Christ, we may rise through the Holy Spirit to eternal life. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Polycarp, pray for us. It is always kind of weird, by the way, a habit that I have to like train myself on uh, because normally when I pray the Gloria Patri, the Glory Be, I tend to bow my head for the first part when I'm mentioning the Trinity and then you know look back up when I say the, as it was. But I can't do that as well because i got to get my head in the same space and proximity to the microphone. So if you see me making like an awkward like head twist, <laughs> that is because it's an old habit of bowing during the, hour, the, the glory be. 
these are the weird things that only the camera audience sees. It is the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Matt Swaim. Anna Mitchell has news. Paul Ekman at the controls. We do have a video feed if you want to check that out. It is in the show notes at sunrisemorningshow.com. Dr. Jeffrey Morrow continues our series on Ascension Press's Catholic Guide to the Old Testament. We're in the book of Ezekiel today, which has got a lot, and I mean a lot, going on. Father Boniface Hicks has a quote from St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a companion of Polycarp of Smyrna, uh, that really kind of unpacks Ignatius's martyr- martyrdom uh, somewhat in light of Polycarp's as well. Bobby Schindler joins us from the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. We'll also look ahead to the Sunday Mass readings with Father Jonathan Duncan of the Diocese of Charleston. So lots to get to on a Friday. Right now it's two minutes past. News of service of Central Fabricators and centralfabricators.com. Here's Anna Mitchell. Good morning. Negotiations in Paris between Israel and Hamas are beginning to pick up steam after the Israeli war cabinet agreed to send a delegation this weekend. An anonymous Western diplomat told USA Today it appears both sides want a ceasefire and are willing to make concessions. The U.S. is imposing more than 500 new sanctions on Russia. The Treasury Department says the move marks the most sanctions since Russia invaded Ukraine two years ago, and their aim is to punish Moscow's war machine and those being held responsible for the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Despite sanctions already in place, Russia's economy has been growing as it increases trade with nations like China and India. U.S. diplomatic officials are being denied access to a woman from Los Angeles who's being accused of treason in Russia. Mark Mayfield has more. The 33-year-old former ballerina faces 20 years to life in prison for allegedly raising funds for Ukraine. Even though the U.S. and Russia have a long-standing agreement to notify each other if a citizen is being held, Moscow refused to do that because it does not recognize the woman's dual citizenship. The charges reportedly stem from the woman donating $51.81 to a Ukrainian charity. I'm Mark Mayfield. Reports say the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and other federal agencies are looking into the cause of yesterday's cell phone outages. They're looking into whether it may have been part of a cyber attack or just technical difficulties. AT&T cell phone service was, was fully restored after being out for most of the day yesterday. T-Mobile and Verizon customers also reported issues, but the carriers said their networks did not experience any outages, and the problems were most likely the result of their customers trying to contact AT&T customers. Cardinal Timothy Dolan is defending the staff of St. Patrick's Cathedral in the wake of the funeral for a transgender activist there. The Catholic News Agency reports Cardinal Dolan said in his podcast this week, that they don't do FBI background checks for funerals. He said, all they know is somebody called and said, our dear friend died. We'd love to have the funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral. It would be a great source of consolation. She's a Catholic. Cardinal Dolan said, quote, and of course, the priest at the cathedral said, come on in. You're more than welcome, end quote. The Vatican yesterday released the theme for the next World Day of Migrants and Refugees, which takes place in September. From Vatican Radio, Joseph Tullock has more. The Vatican's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development has announced the theme for the 110th World Day of Migrants and Refugees. The theme for this year's World Day, which will be celebrated on Sunday the 29th of September of this year, will be God Walks with His People. Ahead of that date, Pope Francis is expected to release a message. In a press release, the Dicastery said that the message would address, quote, the itinerant dimension of the Church. 
with a particular focus on our migrant brothers and sisters who represent a contemporary icon of the journeying church. This is a path to be undertaken in a synodal way, the statement continues, overcoming all threats and obstacles in order to reach our true homeland together. During this journey, wherever people find themselves, it is essential to recognise the presence of God who walks with his people, assuring them of his guidance and protection at every step. Yet, it is equally essential to recognise the presence of the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, in every migrant who knocks at the door of our hearts and offers us an opportunity for encounter. The World Day of Migrants and Refugees is observed every year on the last Sunday of September, first celebrated in 1914. It is an occasion for Catholics worldwide to remember and pray for those displaced by conflict, persecution and economic difficulties. To mark the event, the Dicastery for Promoting Indoor Human Development will carry out a communications campaign aimed at providing a deeper understanding of this year's theme through videos, informational material and theological reflections. I'm Joseph Tullock. And Major League Baseball is dealing with an interesting complaint on a growing list of grievances. The Major League Baseball Players Association is talking to its members to gather feedback on the controversy of so-called see-through pants while hoping changes can be made before opening day. The Nike-generated Fanatics-produced uniforms have been dubbed, quote, performance jerseys by Commissioner Rob Manfred and were used at last year's All-Star Game. An MLB spokesperson said in a statement that adjustments are being made to the jersey size, waist, inseam, thigh fit, and bottom of the pants. What? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I... I know. What is wrong? What is wrong with these people? Like... Do you... Do you remember the Seinfeld episode where George Costanza is um, working for George Steinbrenner and the Yankees and he and comes up with like no, while well, he comes up with the cotton uniforms and the Yankees are they're like all into it because it's like really breathable fabric or whatever yeah, but, it's, but then yeah, they run out on the field and <laughs> no on. then, then they they dry the uniforms and they shrunk and then oh, you, like yes. the end of the show you hear like the radio announcer saying they look like penguins going out there and then, yeah. <laughs> My goodness. See, I, I I actually don't have any comments. No here. commentary. No, I don't have any none comments needed. Say, Come on, baseball. None needed. None Learn from the church. Needed. When you try and modernize, things go badly. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. Yep. Just stick with what you know. Today is Friday, February the 23rd. It is the Feast of St. Polycarp, an apostolic father of the church, bishop of Smyrna, and martyr. First uh, recorded martyrdom, story of his martyrdom, widely available. Just look it up. It's an incredible story that he has. St. Polycarp, pray for us. It's nine past. It's time for our weekly Old Testament Bible study here on the Sunrise Morning Show. We've been using a Catholic guide to the Old Testament from Ascension Press. You can pick up a copy for yourself to help you study the Bible at ascensionpress.com slash Old Testament. And we're back here with one of the contributors, Dr. Jeffrey Morrow. Good morning, Dr. Morrow. Good morning. It's great to be here. It is great to have you. And we are on to the book of the prophet Ezekiel today. Where does he fall on the Bible timeline? Well, he falls in the middle of the Babylonian exile. So he is one of the Israelites that's been taken into captivity, the Babylon. And God is giving him prophecies from Babylon 
about what's about to happen to Jerusalem and then about the future as well. <coughs> and so take us through Ezekiel sure. and uh, give us a sense of what happens throughout this book. Sure thing. So Ezekiel is, is actually nicely divided into four units. So he's very well organized. Ezekiel is one of, like Jeremiah, one of the two major prophets that's also a priest. So he had worked in the temple. So the first part is basically it's a very long part, roughly 24 chapters. He is giving the messages from God before Jerusalem is completely destroyed. So before the temple is destroyed, um, he is giving the prophecies about what's going to happen. The second major section, you know, roughly the second quarter of the book, is where he starts to prophesy now against the other nations. So the beginning of the prophecy against Jerusalem and Israel for its infidelity, and that next quarter is basically going against the other non-Israelite nations. The third portion is then his promised restoration of Jerusalem. So it's going to be about the end of the exile and the return long before this happens. And the final section, which is one of my favorites, um, is the, the rest of the book, basically chapters 40 to 48, envisions a new Jerusalem and a new temple, which I think as Christians especially we can see in terms of the heavenly Jerusalem and the heavenly temple that Jesus uh, institutes. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll dive into more of this um, in just a moment. But are there some major figures that we need to know about to to better understand the book of Ezekiel? Uh, not more than we have in other books like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is pretty important, mm-hmm. um, and then obviously Ezekiel the prophet. Uh, there's, this is I don't think there's specific figures that are as, as key as you have in other ones because he's talking to the people as a whole. Sure, um, but. Uh, but it's important to see, I think, that he is the best example of the prophets, in a sense, living out their prophecies. That the prophecies are not just mere words, right? Like Jeremiah would take a pot and shatter it. Ezekiel does many things like that in his own life. Oh, interesting. So can you talk about some of those, those passages? What are some of the more significant passages that, that we might recognize or we should recognize as Catholics? Well, I would say with, um, with Ezekiel, it's a couple. I would say the—well, the most important is probably my favorite. That's chapter 37. That's the resurrection. This yes. is the clearest example of resurrection in the Old Testament. He's told to preach to a valley of dry bones, and he watches the bones get life. He watches the sinews and the muscles come back on them and the, and the skin, and then God breathes his spirit in them, and they come back to life. Right? And so at one level, this is about the restoration of Israel to the land, but at another level, this is about resurrection, and this is the reason that, um, you know, in Judaism there's this sense of this resurrection at the end of the world, and that was important during Jesus' day. And what Jesus does is he emphasizes that this happens at death, we get raised at death, and eventually at the very end we'll get our bodies back. That's a, that's a really important passage. Really another one I think that's important that people often miss is where he's told to go around the city and place a mark on the foreheads of the oh, righteous yeah. to, to protect them. And in Hebrew, that is, it's a letter. It's not the word mark. It's actually a letter. It's the letter Tav, or some will pronounce it Ta, but I prefer Tav, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's in the Aramaic script now, so it looks a little bit like a like a open cursive R or N or something. But in um, in in early Hebrew, it would have been written like an like an X or a cross, and the letter itself means cross or intersection. So he's basically placing a cross on the foreheads of the righteous. Wow. And this is the reason that if you see a cross on a, on a tomb in Jerusalem, 
it's not clear that this is a Christian tomb, because Jews were putting crosses on their tombs long before Jesus was born, inspired by that passage. No way. Yes, definitely. Wow. And that's not controversial. That is incredible. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to—I mean, I don't even know how to follow up that question right now, because— because I'm going to be I'm going to be pondering that like the it is just so amazing to me I mean especially when we study the Old Testament Dr. Morrow how often the Lord is setting up his people for the incarnation and the death and resurrection of God incarnate That's right Wow Yeah and especially after you see the New Testament you can see the parallels the other thing that's really important with Ezekiel it's going back, these prophecies, they're pretty poignant. I mean, the one, he shaves his head off, mm-hmm. he divides the hair into three parts, chops up one with the sword, one he burns up with fire, the third he scatters to the wind, and this is, you know, this is the people, this is this is what's going to happen to you. Yet, then also he, he has to eat bread baked in excrement. He, first, it's going to be human excrement, and he complains to God, please not, you know, I don't want to do this. And he said, okay, fine, the Lord says, it'll be cow excrement. But it's, it's really... Um, a gruesome passage where he has to eat this d- defiled bread. The hardest one, I think, is though, when his wife dies, oh, that no. that becomes a sign to the people, the death of his wife. Um, it's a very heart-wrenching. There's parts of this that are really heart-wrenching. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the, the passages that, that stands out to me, I believe it's Ezekiel 34, when he's talking about the shepherds. And, yeah. um, and, and I feel like that that is such a rich chapter in Ezekiel that really sets us up to to understand what Christ does when he comes. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, that's one that we have in the liturgy, and the Church Fathers made a big deal about this. Um, he's upset, and yet he says, I, I, I will, my, I'm just turning to myself, I will myself search for my sheep. I will seek them out, says the Lord. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when some of the sheep have been scattered abroad, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. This is really important for John's Gospel, where Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd of Israel, seeking out after his sheep. It's very important. And so, Dr. Morrow, as we close up just quickly, what themes would you encourage someone to be thinking about as they open up the book of Ezekiel? I would think of hope and the fact that the new temple, it's all this death and destruction is ordered to resurrection, hope, and new life in the new temple that Jesus will inaugurate in the new covenant. Ascensionpress.com slash Old Testament is where you can pick up a copy of A Catholic Guide to the Old Testament. It's linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Dr. Jeffrey Morrow, thank you so much. Thank you. You bet. All right, it's 16 past. We're back with headlines right after this. You're listening to The Sunrise Morning Show. Support is from MediShare. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that is MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for healthcare can save many families up to 500 bucks a month, and that is huge. But it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The member satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan. Double. MediShare works, too. It's been around for 30 years. Members have shared more than $5 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, really, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want to plan 
you're happy with. You can call right now. You'll get a price within two minutes. So see what you can say. This is a very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. Call 877-64-BIBLE. That's 877-64-BIBLE. 877-64-BIBLE. If you're switching from coffee to tea for Lent, the Mystic Monks have got you covered with a dozen options from your usual Darjeeling and Earl Grey to more exotic flavors like lemongrass mint and blossoming jasmine. Whether you're buying tea or coffee, you can support the Sunrise Morning Show by earning us a commission on your purchase when you click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. While you're there, browse the Sunrise Morning Show mugs and etched travel mugs in our online store. Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee and tea at sonrisemorningshow.com. The most original and exclusive Catholic content is on EWTN Radio. You know, we talk story with each of our very unique guests for the whole hour so that you can go deep with us as you yourself pursue your own story of heroic virtue and as you pursue intimacy with God. The Bear Wozniak Adventure, Saturday night, 6 Eastern on EWTN Radio. 18 past, here's Anna with headlines. Negotiations in Paris between Israel and Hamas could be picking up steam after the Israeli war cabinet agreed to send a delegation there this weekend. Cardinal Timothy Dolan is defending the staff of St. Patrick's Cathedral in the wake of the funeral for a transgender activist. And the Vatican yesterday released the theme for the next World Day of Migrants and Refugees. All right, Anna Mitchell, yesterday I meant to do some show and tell, but we got a little derailed. Oh, So I'll show you. I'll show and tell now. So we just got these handy-dandy things, and we now have a place to distribute them. So the Coming Home Network um, has been thinking about a good way to help parishes out and let people know how much free stuff we have for Mm -hmm. your OCI, RCA, I think. So we made these brochures, and you can now put them in the back of your parish, and they say, thinking about becoming Catholic (laughs) in big, bold letters. Wow. Uh, So, and inside they've got, like, links to all the, like, the 2,000 plus free articles and videos and conversion stories but on the back and this is wait tell me this this goes in the back of a parish like non-catholics walk into mass they can walk in and if they're thinking about becoming catholic they can actually see a brochure that says on it thinking about becoming catholic yes i know it's a crazy concept but it's it's been kind of like wild to me like when i was coming into the church i didn't see anything anywhere that's like well what do you do if you want to become one of these people so mm. this is trying to solve that problem. But the cool thing on the back is, Anna Mitchell, uh, there's like a QR code where you can go directly to the page. But there's I also this little white blank. I phone if I can get that QR code already. I don't know. Let me see. There's also this little white blank little at the bottom. Oh, yeah, you it's try. too far away. Uh, that's oh, all. Well. So if you contact us through the website, um, chnetwork.org slash parish, which I just linked at sunrisemorningshow.com, uh, and you want these for your parish, we can even have stickers made at the bottom of this where it's like puts the info for your parish office. Oh, neat. <laughs> so that this person can actually know who to talk to at the church if they want to become Catholic. Cool. That's a crazy concept. Check it out. You subscribe to get the Sunrise Morning Show show notes. When you subscribe, the show notes arrive in your inbox weekday mornings with the list of featured guest books, articles, and websites we'll discuss. And then you'll also get the podcast with markers to quickly find and hear an interview again or to see the Sunrise Morning Show on video. So to know when your favorite guests are on, 
go to sunrisemorningshow.com and click subscribe. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. This is Father Rob Jack. Please join with me now in this prayer for priests. God, our Father, you entrust your priests with the care of your people. Through their teaching, leading, and sanctifying, they gather your church into one body and strengthen her in her evangelical mission. Bless our priests and bishops, especially those for whom we now pray. Give them the grace to be effective witnesses of your mercy, love, and truth. Bless those priests who suffer from sickness and disease, both in mind and body. Bless our dying priests. May they offer their sufferings for the good of all your people and find healing and consolation in this life, if it be your holy will. Bless those priests who have failed and suffer hardship. Send them your spirit of forgiveness and help them to turn again to you. Lord, deepen our love for our priests. Lord, inspire many young men to answer your call to the priesthood. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Father Boniface Hicks. He is the author of a couple of different things, but among them, Personal Prayer, A Guide for Receiving the Father's Love. He co-wrote it with Father Thomas Acklin. It's a great guide to really understanding uh, the Catholic perspective on prayer. Father Boniface, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Great to be with you. Great to be with you as well. And there's this mysterious verse uh, that has always fascinated me, and it's in 1 John chapter 3. It's verse 2. And uh, John says, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, meaning Jesus, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, that's a verse loaded with mystery. What are we supposed to make of it? it it's a beautiful promise. Uh, what we're made for is to be like him. And that transformation happens from the inside out. And that's the, the place that we already are like him in our in our vulnerability and our capacity for relationship and the depth of love within us. But when that principle, which is a little bit distorted, and then it's also limited by time and space, when that becomes our entire existence, when we're transformed from the inside to be pure love, uh, then we shall be like Him, and we, we shall see Him as He is. His, uh, his inside is on his outside, and our inside will be on our outside, and, and that will be a place of pure communion, of pure love. It's, uh, and it's, it's what we get tastes of. We get tastes of it already in our relationships, when we have beautiful, loving relationships where there's real safety to be vulnerable and real intimacy and interiority, and we get tastes of that in our experience with him in prayer as well, when we when we encounter him, not from the outside, we're, we're often, that's the, the journey of, uh, the spiritual journey is moving from the outside to the inside, that I stop focusing on what my eyes see so much, and I start to pay more attention to what my heart sees, we could say. And then the communion that we experience, the interior communion, happens not through the, the external senses with God, but rather through those, those internal senses. So 
that journey of deepening interiority uh, eventually breaks through to the point that we see as we have never seen. Uh, heaven is the, the beatific vision where we finally see uh, where, where love becomes visible in a new way. So it is, uh, it is really mysterious. It's exciting. It's something to, to look forward to and to dream about. And it's uh, the kind of thing that captivates musicians and artists and other masters of, uh, of symbolic communication in order to try and capture that which through, in this life can only be imagined through the, the vision of faith, but in, in the next life will actually be seen as he is. Well, I didn't coach you before this, but you said the two words I was trying to get you to say to help sum up this. <laughs> we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. And that's beatific vision. Uh, that's a, a phrase that Catholics toss about uh, fairly often to say. Uh, it's just usually sometimes just a coded way to say heaven, right? Being up in heaven mm -hmm. with all the other people in perfect bliss and joy. Uh, but to really reflect on what that beatific vision must actually be like. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing to try and wrap your mind around. Well, it's an impossible thing <laughs> to wrap yeah. your mind around exactly, actually. so Your mind's not big um, enough but, to wrap around it. So No, that's right. It's, uh, it's a beautiful principle that's been very helpful for me is that, uh, you know, we really cannot see. So I, I just described a bunch of ways that we move around it with, with symbols, music, art, and um, and, and then we have a sense of interiority, but, uh, but we're always limited by the veil of faith. Our, our knowledge, our seeing, our thinking, our mind can only go so far. But the beautiful thing is that our heart pierces the veil. Love, the love that we have now is the same love that we have in heaven. That is the thing that remains the same. Our, our way of seeing and knowing will change in a, uh, in a, in a fundamental way uh, that that just doesn't doesn't get there now. So that's uh, the thing we're always running up against is that veil of faith that requires our our trust in this life. But it'll be opened up in the next life, so that it won't just be a, an imagination or a limitation. But uh, the same way that we love will will flow into our vision as well. Yeah, I think we get glimpses of what it might be like from time to time when we feel like a pure joy in something that has it's completely an unselfish joy right uh you know the birth of a child is a perfect example of this right pure joy uh driven by completely like unselfish motives right or or, or there are little things like this that we can get hints at uh, but what must it be like you know to have uh that pure vision of joy motivated purely by love instead of selfishness i mean that's something that's something i need to do better on because uh, I would like to, I would like to be in that space for all eternity. That's right, absolutely. Yeah, Pope Benedict in uh, his encyclical on hope describes it as being plunged into an ocean of infinite love. <laughs> that sounds and pretty good. The, so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is yeah, at the very anything. least better than the alternative. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's um, for sure. Well, the book is called Personal Prayer, A Guide to Receiving the Father's Love. Uh, it's by Father Boniface Hicks. He co-wrote it with another Benedictine monk, Father Thomas Acklin. It's a great reflection on prayer and a great helpful starter guide for anyone who is trying to dig into this more. Thank you so much, Father Boniface. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too, Matt. 
And again, uh, if you're appreciating what you're hearing on Catholic Radio, bear in mind, you're going to be at Mass this weekend with a whole bunch of people who have had varying degrees of success with Lent so far and are maybe looking for some good stuff to include into their day. Uh, Let them know it's as simple as turning on the radio. You've got a local Catholic radio station in your backyard. Very likely, it's the thing you're listening to us on right now. And all you've got to do is tell somebody, like, the three numbers, the four numbers that someone has to put into their radio to listen, and they get free Catholic radio 24-7. So tell somebody in your parish about your local Catholic radio station this weekend or the apps, EWTN, Sunrise Morning Show, or what have you. It is half past the hour. Here's Anna Mitchell with news. Good morning. Negotiations in Paris between Israel and Hamas could pick up some steam after the Israeli war cabinet agreed to send a delegation there this weekend. An anonymous diplomat told USA Today it appears both sides want a ceasefire and are willing to make concessions. Reports say the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and other federal agencies are looking into the cause of yesterday's cell phone outages. They're looking into whether it may have been part of a cyber attack or just technical difficulties. AT&T cell phone service was fully restored after being out for most of the day. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley says she agrees with the recent Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children. Mark Mayfield reports. However, she told CNN that she has not endorsed the ruling. Last week's ruling said embryos created during in vitro fertilization are extra-uterine children and are legally protected in Alabama like any other child. On Wednesday, Haley was asked about the ruling during an interview and said, embryos to me are babies. She cautioned, however, that we need to be incredibly respectful and sensitive about families using in vitro fertilization. I'm Mark Mayfield. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have both condemned that Alabama Supreme Court ruling. In a statement yesterday, Biden said the decision is the type of chaos he expected as a result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Harris took to social media on Wednesday and said the ruling was outrageous and was already, quote, robbing women of the freedom to decide when and how to build a family, end quote. Harris yesterday continued her pro-abortion tour of the country, rallying yesterday with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and others in Grand Rapids. Thousands of Virginians, meanwhile, showed their support yesterday for pro-life laws in the Commonwealth. They took part in the annual State March for Life at the Capitol in Richmond yesterday. The governor and lieutenant governor both participated in the march, reaffirming their opposition to any expansion of abortion funding and services. Governor Glenn Youngkin called those efforts, quote, disconnected with what Virginians believe. He also said he would work to find bipartisan support for ways to protect the unborn and to help children thrive once they are born. A retired bishop from Australia was arrested this week and charged with 19 sexual offenses. From Vatican Radio, Christopher Wells reports. Bishop Christopher Saunders, the former ordinary of Broome in Western Australia, was arrested on Wednesday. He was reportedly released on bail on Thursday and ordered to reside at his home until his next hearing in June. The bishop is charged with two counts of rape, 14 counts of unlawful and indecent assault, and three counts of indecently dealing with a child as a person in authority. 
In a statement, Archbishop Timothy Costello, the president of the Australian Catholic Bishops' Conference, said the allegations were very serious and deeply distressing, especially for those making those allegations. It is right and proper, he continued, and indeed necessary, that all such allegations be thoroughly investigated. Accusations were first made against Bishop Emeritus Barome in 2020. An initial police investigation was closed without charge, but Pope Francis then ordered a canonical investigation according to the provisions of Vos Estis Lux Mundi, his 2019 motu proprio on combating sexual abuse. The investigation was overseen by Archbishop Mark Coleridge of Brisbane, but was carried out by independent investigators and terminated in a 200-page report. After this report was handed over to Australian police, they opened a new investigation into Bishop Emeritus Sanders. It is as part of this investigation that he has now been charged. The bishop resigned from his post in 2020. I'm Christopher Wells. And Cardinal Timothy Dolan is defending the staff of St. Patrick's Cathedral in the wake of the funeral there for a transgender activist. The Catholic News Agency reports Cardinal Dolan said in his podcast this week they don't do FBI background checks for funerals. He said, quote, all they know is somebody called and said our dear friend died. We'd love to have the funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral. It would be a great source of consolation. She's a Catholic. Cardinal Dolan went on to say, quote, and of course, the priest at the cathedral said, come on in. You're more than welcome. End quote. That's the news. It's 35 past the hour. During this season of Lent, may we suggest giving up the coffee shop and making your coffee at home? You could practice this little penance while giving a few alms by purchasing Mystic Monk Coffee. You'll support both the monks and the show because we earn a commission when you go to them through our link at sunrisemorningshow.com. Also at our site, get yourself a Sunrise Morning Show mug, which you can find in our online store. Grab a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. Some figures in the Bible remain a mystery to us. One such figure is the man healed by Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida. You remember him. He was suffering for 38 years with no one to take him to the pool of water for healing. Jesus walked by, directed him to pick up his mat, and walk. He did just that. When confronted by the authorities, this cripple said he had no idea who healed him on the Sabbath. Later, he met Jesus in the temple, and then he returned to the authorities and told them that it was Jesus. Was he so filled with joy at his healing that he announced it, hoping they would be healed too, spiritually? This would make this crippled man a loyal witness for Jesus. Or was he contributing to the hostility so many had towards the Lord? In this line of thinking, the man remained spiritually crippled. Perhaps John leaves this story so ambiguous so that we can put ourselves into it. What would be our response to the Lord? For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear.
Sunrise Morning Show continues on this Friday. It is the 23rd of February. It's a Friday in Lent. Just a reminder that uh, it is a meatless Friday, as all Fridays in Lent are. Although some of you go meatless on Fridays year-round. I know I at least attempt to. Uh, but uh, during Lent, we, uh, we kick it up a notch. Or maybe we kick it down a notch. I think it's probably a better way to put it. Bobby Schindler now joining us from the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network online at lifeandhope.com. Bobby, good morning. Good morning, Matt. So we are constantly finding more about the brain, which only tells us how much we still yet to have yet to know about the brain. But what are some of the interesting developments you've come across lately? Right, and it, 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 it's funny you say that, Matt, because every time we talk about these things and when I read these articles and all the new research and studies that are, that are being published, and it's all been very encouraging, in, in every one of these articles you always read somewhere where how much they're learning about the brain, how much they don't know about the brain, all these new discoveries, and how much more research we need uh, to, to conduct on the brain. And, and they're talking about brain injury for the most part. So in this one, uh, this was Tufts University School of Medicine, and they found using this type of imaging uh, technology. So essentially, Matt, what, what, it, what they found is they, they always thought uh, one area, when, when a brain uh, sustains a traumatic brain injury, uh, I guess they thought it, was always, it would only affect one area of the brain. Well, this imaging uh, has discovered that well, even though one area of the brain might be injured, as soon as the brain is injured, the, the entire brain starts to work to repair itself. So the different hemispheres start working together to fix itself, essentially. And this is something they, they did discover uh, recently. So uh, they, they, they talk about how the brain starts to talk to each other after a brain injury. And uh, they said traumatic brain injury tends to focus on a region of the injury, but this study makes a good case that the entire brain can be affected and the imaging that they conducted can prove, provide valuable information. And I can go on with some other information about the article, but I'll stop there. But that's essentially what they found, Matt, that, that one area, the brain, when it sustains an injury, that area is not affected. The whole brain starts to work to repair itself, which is really kind of, it's just fascinating stuff, reading, reading how, they're, how they're discovering these things about the brain. The, the most fascinating aspect about this well, it's, it's the, the most fascinating aspect about what it means to be like a human being, uh, a, an aspect of God's creation anyway. Like, I, uh, you know, will cut my elbow or something on something, and I don't think to myself, man, I really got to tell my elbow skin cells to go fix themselves, you know, when I wake up tomorrow morning. You know, I, I don't want to forget to, like, let my elbow cells know they've got to do this work. Like, it's doing this stuff uh, without, quote-unquote, someone thinking about it as it were, the brain is thinking about it. That's right. And, and, and I, I love how they mentioned, again, in this article, uh, that this, and it always leads to this, Matt, which is, is, which is so important. They said that these types of studies uh, are going to help enhance an individual's treatment. And it says uh, it, it'll offer better opportunities to explore different interventions for physical therapy, speech therapy, and more. And they talk about this underscores the complexity of how injury affects a dynamic and always changing brain. And uh, they talk about they want to do more studies for people that, that for even longer post-recovery periods. And uh, just every, Matt, it all goes back to what we talk about every, you know, so much on this program and, and so many of the calls that we receive from families and how quickly doctors want to give up on these uh, loved ones who experience a brain injury, and within 
man, I'm not exaggerating. Sometimes within hours uh, of, an, of being admitted to the hospital, they'll conduct these brain, these images, and, and conduct these tests, and they'll come back to the family. And like, you, you know, the, the brain has experienced such a severe injury, we think it'd be best uh, to, to stop treatment. And what they're saying now with these studies is as soon as the brain is injured, it starts to repair itself, and, and every individual is different, and it might take someone much longer to, to, to start to uh, show signs of recovery than somebody else. And, and I, I just... I, I don't understand with all this new research how they're still making decisions such a short period of time to give up on these patients, knowing that the brain might take an extended period of time before it even starts to show that it is uh, recovering from, from its injury. Yeah, it is. Again, I feel like it's a drum we beat all the time because it's a drum we have to beat. Uh, but, Bobby, I, there's something that, that uh, is not in your notes, but I wanted to make sure to highlight this so we can get your take on it because I don't know if you've been following it at all here in the state of Maryland. You know, we're fighting this battle in all the different states, but in, in Maryland, where I live, um, there's been uh, this end-of-life option bill, uh, Senate Bill 443. It's House Bill 403. Uh, and as you know, the end-of-life option act sound is one of those things. You can guess if it's trying to be couched in that kind of nice language. You, you know what it's about, right? It's uh, the right for terminally ill patients to quote-unquote die uh, on their own terms. And uh, it's been heavily discussed here in the state of Maryland. But interestingly enough, uh, this morning I read a piece in the Baltimore Sun, of all places, and it was by Carol Vidal, who is uh, president of the Maryland Psychiatric Society, and they are not fans of this. The Maryland Psychiatric Society has come out against this end-of-life thing. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons they have, and this comes back to something we've talked about a number of times before, uh, Vidal writes in this op-ed, Providing a lethal drug to a patient without a proper psych psychiatric evaluation to rule out depression is simply malpractice. Our Maryland Psychiatric Society colleagues have suggested many amendments to the bill over the years, which the supporters of the bill, which is Compassion and Choices, have refused to adopt. The guardrails are essential in a bill that deals with life and death. I don't know how the Maryland Psychiatric Society is with end-of-life questions as a whole, but on this one, at least they're blowing the whistle and say, if you're going to do this stuff, you got to have, you got to have guardrails. Yeah, well, Wesley speaks about this all the time. We're treating mental, mental health challenges. Uh, the solution is to kill the person, right? I mean, it's outrageous, and I'm glad, it's wonderful to hear that this, this group is speaking out against this, because that's exactly what's, what's happening. And it, it goes back to time. Like it, what, what we're saying about brain injury, what we're saying about people with mental, mental health challenges, you know, we want to we treat these things. Uh, in, in a, we don't want to serve the patient and treat them and, and treat the, the mental challenges that they're having. We want to treat it by killing them. And, and what does it go back to, it seems to me? You know, we want to save money, right? We, we don't want to treat a long extended treatment plan for someone who experiences brain injury. It might need months or even years. Of, of help and treatment, right? That, that costs money. That's resources. It's much easier. It saves money to, to end their lives. And it's the same thing with assisted suicide. It, it's, it's cost containment. You know, we're, we're treating mental health issues. We're treating people with terminal illnesses. We want to kill them in a short period of time because we don't want to provide the resources and the cost it might, it might uh, take to treat these, these patients properly and, 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 and use, you know, the, as, as in this case, uh, the tools to try to help them through maybe a difficult time rather than, you know, push them off the, off the ledge and, and say, you know, maybe oh, you're sad. Let me option. help you with it's that. Just, it's, right. It's crazy yeah. to me. It is insane. Uh, but again, I, I think that there are, are, are some people who are starting to realize how 
and saying it is. There's a. I'm going to send you this article, and I'll put it up on our Facebook page, um, especially for our Maryland yeah, listeners uh, who can who can contact their legislators. But there's the the photo for this op-ed has a person with compassion and choices sitting, uh, a supporter of this end of life act, sitting next to. Uh, O.J. Briggins, who's a former Ravens, Baltimore Ravens football player who struggles with a neurodegenerative disease, who's in a wheelchair, opposing these people who are trying to kill people like him. I mean, it's a powerful photo, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll post that on our Facebook page. But, Bobby, thank you for your vigilance on these questions. Thank you for the constant reminder um, that there are people who are trying to push this stuff ahead, but that there's still just so much we don't know about the brain. Where can people find you? Right, Matt. Yeah, death and killing is not the solution, Matt. Uh, Lifeandhope.com. Lifeandhope.com. Linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thanks, Bobby Schindler. Have a great day. Thank you, Matt. God bless you. Father Jonathan Duncan joins us next. It's 14 Till. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on The Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. This is Father John Bonavita There are many Catholic Christians who turn on the radio and they want to hear something spiritual, something about faith. So it's critical that in every area we can have Catholic radio and that we as Catholics will continue to support this great work and for bringing the message of the gospel, the message of our beautiful Catholic faith to everyone. The world needs EWTN Catholic Radio now more than ever. Hi, this is Janet Williams. Please join us for Women of Grace today at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. Wipe that sleep out of your eyes and now back to the Sunrise Morning Show. All kinds of great stuff to listen to over the weekend between now and the next time we have a Sunrise Morning Show on EWTN, including, for those of you late-nighters, Family Theater Classic Radio, Sunday nights at 11.30 Eastern on EWTN. I don't know about you. I love those old radio dramas. Like, I mean, I got into radio as a kid, and still to this day, if I'm driving and I flip through and I hear, like, an old-school radio drama, I'm like, man, I want to see where this is going. Family Theater Classic Radio, Sunday nights at 11.30 p.m. on EWTN Radio. 
I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Father Jonathan Duncan. He's a priest of the Diocese of Charleston. He's a director of spiritual health at Bon Secours St. Francis Hospital, also works in school and campus ministry. Father Duncan, good morning. Good to be with you. I'm, I'm ready to hear more about these radio dramas. I'm telling you. Well, they've been around for longer than you or I to put together. So, I mean, these old school radio dramas. I love them. I love them. I love how they made the sound effects in those. You hear like people like banging shoes on a wood board to make it sound like people are walking. It's fun stuff. It's fun stuff. All right. So I don't know how you're going to pack all the theology that shows up in the readings on Sunday oh, into one homily because you've got the sacrifice of Isaac. You've got the transfiguration. Uh, you know, you've got some pretty heady stuff from Romans uh, and St. Paul, which is basically like Paul giving a locker room speech to the Romans for them to go back out and take over the world for Christ. So, what are you gonna What are you gonna key in on? Yeah, I, I mean, it's like it's like the lectionary people just sort of let's let's throw everything like, let's just up dump against everything the wall on the table. And see yeah. what see what sticks, you know. Um, you know, I'm I'm always moved by, of course the um, the offering of, of Abraham. I think that's you know it's a beautiful Lenten theme. Um, yeah, I mean, the, so I'll tell you what I. What I'm, what I'm thinking about is, with that, I often find myself asking, like, okay, how was it that Abraham was able to do this? Like, how was it that, that he was able to, to have the kind of faith that says, you know, God, I, I know he must be for me, and I know that ultimately whatever is happening um, this is going to be for my good, and whatever he's asking me, ultimately, it's going to be for my good. And I have to ask, okay, how does he, how does he know that? And if you turn back earlier in the story of Abraham, what you find is God making that promise to him, and and we, are, and it doesn't appear in this Sunday's reading, but just a, a couple chapters before we have Abraham having a vision. Essentially, he asked God, God, how, how can I know that this is going to be true? You know, how can I know that you're going to fulfill this promise of, of giving, me, um, giving me offspring, of, of, of making my people a blessing to the nations? How can I know that that's going to be true? And we're told that Abraham has this vision where God comes as a, as a smoking firepot in the midst of uh, a sacrifice that Abraham is, is instructed to offer. He, he splits the pieces of animals, and that God actually enters into that sacrifice and comes between the pieces of the animals. In the ancient world, uh, to, to cut a covenant with someone, that was the expression that was used, was to take animals, to split them in, in pieces, and then you would walk between the pieces with your partner in that covenant, essentially saying, you know, if, if I go back on this, may I become like these animals you're here in the midst of death. And we're told that Abraham has this vision where in the midst of this sacrifice that he's offered, this covenant, binding covenant sacrifice he offers, God comes in fire and smoke and goes between the pieces. And I think that's, that's such a beautiful sign that, that essentially God is saying, I swear by myself that I am going to be faithful to this promise. And I'm going to do it by coming in the midst of death. And so, of course, in our gospel, we see the Lord Jesus, 
who comes between two who were presumed to be dead, right? Moses and Elijah, but who in God, of course, are very much alive. And yet we know that the sacrifice of Abraham and even the vision that we receive in our gospel for this Sunday is going to be fulfilled when Jesus is lifted high in the midst of death again. But that, of course, death will not be the final word. So I think, I think I'm going to kind of discuss a little bit about that, but that's, it's, it's the knowledge of that, it's that reality that, of course, gives Paul the confidence to say to those in Rome, if God is for us, who can be against us? Mm. He has the, he's the one who has given up his only son for us. And if he's demonstrated that kind of love, why would we not think everything else that will be essential to our life, needful to us, he would also give us as well. Um, and so again, it's, it's, it's trying to encourage in the, in the Church in Rome a trust that God is for us, that he's not against us. Um, and it's that same kind of confidence that Abraham had because of that vision of God entering into a covenant with him. Uh, and it's that kind of strength and confidence, the kind that the two, um, the, the three uh, apostles were given in that vision that allowed them um, to see a glimpse so that, of course, later they could go out and proclaim the glory. That's what Peter uh, eventually would write. You know, this is not a cleverly devised myth. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. And that's the calling of each and every one of us, to be eyewitnesses both to that glory, but also to the glory of the crucifixion, the, the sacrifice of the Father for his Son. So they're all kind of woven together. They are woven together, and I'm never going to think of this the same after you just mentioned this. So Abraham, the covenant, uh, happens, right? In Genesis 15, you've got uh, Abraham who has to split the animals in two, and God himself goes between them. And when you see Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration, Moses represents the law, Elijah represents all the prophets. They together, the law and the prophets is the... uh, the Hebrew way of saying the Bible, right? Yeah, and so everything. the Bible is essentially split in half, and God walks between that, uh, right, yep. in the transfigure. I'm never going to forget that that connection after this morning's conversation. It's a beautiful glimpse for this second Sunday in Lent to be able to see, you know, God coming in the midst of, of death. God is asking of Abraham something that ultimately— he asks of himself, and he fulfills in himself, um, and that's like that's the beauty, like the glory that we that we see and that the um, the disciples see in the transfiguration is nothing compared to the glory of the Lord lifted up for our sins, not between Moses and Elijah, but between criminals. Um, yeah. You know, that's the glory that saves, that heals, that forgives. Well, that's the glory that Paul talks about in the second reading. Uh, from Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's powerful stuff. Father Junk- Jonathan Duncan, have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon. My goodness, that wraps it up for a jam-packed Friday morning here on the Sunrise Morning Show, but you got Catholic Radio going all weekend long, and we'll catch up back with you on a Monday. In the meantime, don't forget, it's a Lenten Friday. Plan your meals accordingly. Check us out at sunrisemorningshow.com. All kinds of free cool stuff there, and we will talk to you soon. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.